0: Chapter 23 of The Child of the Moat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Chirac. The Child of the Moat by Ian Bernard Stoughton Holborn. Chapter 23 A Duel to the Death. Meanwhile, Aileen had been having a very unhappy time. She was practically confined to her room the whole day long but she did not come down for the midday meal. Master Mowbray, strong as his Catholic sympathies were, not only resented the interference of the priests in his house, but was concerned at seeing the child look so starved and ill, and therefore he had insisted on this much. It did enable Aileen to get some nourishment, although she only had bread and water for the rest of the time, and it did make a slight break in the day, for she dared not use the secret stair except when everyone was in bed, for fear of anyone coming to her room and finding that she was not there. But the meals were anything but a pleasure. Master Mowbray would look at her sorrowfully, but he scarcely ever said anything, and Mistress Mowbray would make cruel, biting remarks and watch the child wince under them. Her poor little soul grew very sad, and night after night she would cry herself to sleep, If only Ian would come! If only Ian would come! She was some time before she actually grasped that the inquisitors would take away her life, but one day when Father Ambrose was at dinner, he had tauntingly asked her whether she had repented of her folly, and then, with a leer, had rubbed his hands and said, "'You obstinate minx! They're coming for you right soon! And ah, how glad I shall be to see your long hair shrivel up and your pretty face swell and burst in the fire!' Aline suddenly realized that he was in earnest and for the moment was petrified with terror. Then she remembered that many children younger than she had been martyrs in the old Roman days— and for the moment there was a revulsion of feeling and she smiled to think that she was worthy to suffer death in the master's cause. Richard Mowbray had not realized it before either and was shocked beyond measure. He said nothing to his wife, but decided to set off at once for York to see the archbishop, whom he knew personally and discover what could be done. He was on the point of forbidding Father Ambrose entry to the house, but he restrained himself, as that would excite suspicion. He was accustomed to going away suddenly for a few days at a time so that his departure that very afternoon surprised no one. He reckoned that it would take him at least a week and told his wife not to expect him before that time. When Eileen reached her room, her feelings swung the other way again. Why should she die? What had she done? She was sure that God would not wish her to die. She waited till night and crept down to the secret room. She did not often do this even at night, as although there was a good store of candles she saw no prospect whatever of replenishing it, and was afraid of using it up. She sat down on the oak settle, and tried to face the situation. If the inquisitors came, she must try somehow to escape, and the incident of the blue hose had suggested that she should do so in the garb of a boy. She rummaged over the clothes that she found, and set to work to put them in order and adapt them for her own use. She chose the strongest things that she could find, and during the next few nights, she managed with a little alteration to fit herself out with a boy's doublet, coat-hardy, surcoat, and a pair of trunks. She found an admirable mantle of russet cloth that only required shortening, and she herself possessed a pair of strong, sad-coloured hose. She reckoned that it would not be possible to cut her hair before her escape, so she prepared three hats, one that was very large, into which her hair could be put in a hurry, a medium one, into which it could be put very tightly twisted, and a smaller one that she could wear with her hair cut short to the ears she also began to lay in a store of provisions saving all that she could from her slender allowance as she judged that it would be safest to spend a week if possible in the secret room until the first hue and cry had subsided if she should have to make the desperate attempt to escape alone but poor child her plan was frustrated it was very cold in her little chamber so she had been wearing some extra clothing she decided, therefore, that the wisest course would be to dress exactly like a boy, and wear what was necessary of her own clothes on the top. So she put on the boy's shirt and trunks, and stitched points to her hose, and tied them to those on the trunks. Over this she put a coat hardy, and then a belt with a dagger. Above this again she wore a girl's longer coat hardy, and above that again a short surcoat. The medium-sized hat was made of silk, and the finest cursi, and was therefore easily concealed under her clothes. It had a full silk crown and a brim turned up all round nearly to the crown itself, with slits every three inches, giving it a sort of battlemented appearance with the crown just appearing over the top. Old fashion still lingered in the north, and Ian had had one like it, which he said resembled one worn by Prince Arthur of Wales. She was helped by a little drawing which Ian had made for her when they were talking about the well known portrait. When she had done, she felt very proud of her handiwork, and the long mirror was a welcome joy at the end of the doleful days. She looked out a sword for herself and practiced making passes. All was ready four days after Richard Mowbray's departure, and three days later, when he had not yet returned, there was a sudden stir and noise in the outer courtyard while they were having the midday meal. "'That will be Walter Margrave, I'm thinking,' said Mistress Mowbray. "'They always seem to make that man's arrival an excuse for neglecting their work.' Idle hussies and varlets, all of them. She rose as she spoke, and went out into the screens. Aileen followed her. A tall priest had already crossed the threshold. "'May I speak with Master Mowbray?' he asked. "'Master Mowbray is away. You must ask what you want of me. Come this way,' she said, and stepped out the door at the other end of the screens, so as to be away from the servants and Aileen. "'We have come,' said Father Austin, for it was he, with a warrant for the arrest of a heretic a certain Aileen Gillespie. See, here are the seals thereon of Queen Mary and Bishop Bonner himself. It is well that one be careful in these matters, he said, smiling grimly. Some would be content with lesser signatures and seals, but then their work might be overset. They had been strolling toward the end of the quadrangle and were nearing the entrance to the stair that led to Aileen's room. It had only taken an instant for it to flash through Aileen's mind that the hour had come and it was now or never. She followed quietly behind them, and hoped to be able to slip up the stair before they could catch her, and was ready to make a dash as they turned. They turned just before reaching the door, and Aileen made a rush. "'Not so fast, my child,' said the priest, stretching out a long, interposing arm. "'Whither away? I may want speech of thee shortly.' He turned with a look of sanctimonious triumph to Mistress Mowbray. "'Mother Church will clean your house of this vermin for you, madam,' he said." Aileen gave one little gasp of mortal terror and then stood dumb for a second like a small bird caught by a beast of prey. She gave one appealing look toward Mistress Mowbray and then swung round facing the dining hall and paused a moment, with Father Austin's hand still on her shoulder. "'I prefer to clear my own house,' Mistress Mowbray said icily. She disliked the man. She disliked his interference. He could not have said anything more foolish. Aileen's interference had been outrageous, but it was nothing to this.' at least the child was one of themselves. Mistress Mowbray's wrath raged at the insolence of this outsider. She looked again at Aileen, delicate, fragile, ethereal, and the thought of the appealing look of the beautiful child at last thawed her hard heart. "'What if ever Audrey should be in a like plight?' she mused. All this was in a flash as she turned to Aileen and, looking her full in the face, said, "'Audrey, dear, run and tell Silas that there's a rat-catcher or something,' "'who thinks that we have vermin in the house and would like a job. "'You can also find Aileen and tell her "'that he seems to like catching little girls.' "'Father Austin dropped his arm at the name of Audrey, "'and Aileen, though puzzled, ran off swiftly. "'As Mistress Mowbray finished her sentence, he bit his lip. "'He saw that he had made a mistake. "'Who is Audrey, madam?' "'Audrey is my daughter,' answered Mistress Mowbray "'with her chin very much in the air. "'I thought that child there was Aileen Gillespie,' said the priest.' So it was, said the lady calmly. But you called her Audrey, madam, he replied, and told her to speak to Aileen. Did I? she said with well-feigned surprise. You confuse me with your peculiar language. Meanwhile, Aileen ran back to the screens, intending to go through and cross the lower court and slip out over the drawbridge. She might reach the stream and make her way up to the cave before anyone clearly grasped what was happening. But when she came to the further door, she was met by a large crowd that had followed the Inquisitors, and it was useless to try and make headway against it. Besides, she saw Father Martin's head appearing over the rest away in the background. She turned back again with the head of the crowd and half-mechanically picked up a staff that was standing in the corner by the door as she passed into the court. She pushed her way past two men who were armed with swords and were just stepping through the doorway. She might still be able to get into the library, and desperate as the chance was, she hoped to throw them off the scent by breaking a window before going down through the kist to the secret room. Father Austin was standing near the bottom of the stair of her chamber. That way was closed, so she ran towards the small flight of steps leading to the little terrace in front of the library. "'Seize her, Hubert!' shouted the priest. The big burly man, addressed, rushed after her. Aileen swung round suddenly and hit him unexpectedly with her staff on the side of his head and darted on. The man gave a great yell and the crowd roared with laughter, which doubled his rage, and, drawing his sword, he dashed again in pursuit. Aileen was fleet and reached the library door before he was halfway across the quadrangle. She feverishly grasped the handle. Alas, it was locked. As she turned back, Hubert nearly reached the bottom of the steps. Four more paces and his sword would be through her. The heavy man took a great stride halfway up the stair, the hunted child stood at bay. How frail and slight she seemed, only a delicate flower, ineffectively beautiful. The crowd stood motionless and held their breath, while some closed their eyes. Hubert laughed at the absurd sight of the child bearing his way. She could no longer hit him unawares. He was armed and ready. He expected nothing. When Aileen, quick as lightning, by a dexterous turn of her staff, twisted the sword out of his hand and, lunging forward, caught him under the chin with her full force, so that the big man overbalanced and fell backward down the steps, stunned. Aileen stooped and picked up the sword. Hubert's fellow, however, was close behind. "'Kill her!' shouted Father Martin. "'Slay the witch, Gilbert!' echoed Father Austin. As she picked up Hubert's sword, she had to draw back in rising, and Gilbert was already up the steps. He was a more active man than the other, but he had taken in the situation and was no fool, so, child as she was, he advanced more cautiously. Poor little Aileen had to think and fight at the same time. What was she to do? Even if she overcame this man, there were others. Obviously, she could not fight them all. But she thought of a faintly possible chance, and before Gilbert closed with her, gave a glance across the moat. Could she cross it? As she glanced, she saw a sight for which she had been longing all those weary weeks. It was a single horseman with two horses, evidently making his way toward the gully. He was turning to look back at the hall. She saw no more, and straightway began a very pretty bit of swordplay. Gilbert proceeded warily in foine, parry and counter-parry followed by a monotonous precision. Aileen kept very cool, and at first attempt little, but after a short time she tried a feint or so in order to test him. She soon found that he was no mean swordsman, but she had learned much from Ian which he had brought from Italy and France, so Gilbert in his turn discovered that she was not an opponent to be despised. He reckoned, however, that his greater strength must tell in the end, and took things somewhat easily. For a time, therefore, nothing happened, but a little later, after a riposte on Aileen's part, Gilbert gave a counter-riposte and just touched her on the arm. He began to feel his superiority and pressed in harder, while she gradually drew back, a little and a little along the terrace." Gilbert thought that he was slowly mastering her, but Aileen was playing for her own ends as her one slender hope was to let him wear himself out. The crowd by this time were spellbound, and even the two priests were overcome by the fascination of the scene, the beautiful, agile child and the dexterous but far slower swordsman. The silence was intense, broken only by the clash of the swords. Gradually, they neared the end of the terrace. It was an awful moment for Aileen. The man was obviously getting tired, but she shrank from trying to inflict a severe wound, and he was far too skillful for her to disarm him. There was nothing for it, however, and when almost at the little low wall at the terrace end, the instinctive struggle for life began to tell, and the fighting on both sides became more serious. Aileen received a slight scratch on her left shoulder, and this settled the matter and nerved her to a supreme effort. As he lunged again, she parried. Made a riposte, with a reprise, following like a lightning flash, and swift as thought, her sword was through his heart, and he fell dead on the pavement. The crowd gasped. Aileen stayed not an instant, but leaped upon the low terrace wall. Standing still for a moment, she tore her outer garments from her and stood there like a lovely boy, save for the great flood of hair that had come entirely loose and that was caught on the windy battlement and blown like a cloud high behind her then she paused and turning to the quadrangle thronged with people she said how dare you play the coward's part setting two armed men to attack one small girl god will punish you father martin and you too she said pointing to father austin and the blood of the slain man will cling to you and remorse shall tear your hearts i am only a child and it is little that i know but i do know that there is no love for a hard heart "'from God or from men. "'And you, Elspeth, Janet, and those I love, "'it is hard to say goodbye, but I must go. "'Shoot her! Shoot her!' shrieked the priest. "'She blasphemes! She takes the name of God in vain!' "'But the angry crowd surged round the garden "'would not let them move. "'One, however, broke loose and raised his pistol. "'But as he did so, Aline, to the utter astonishment of all, "'still holding the sword,' "'dived into the moat. "'Our Lady, shield thee, St. Helene!' cried a voice from the crowd, "'and as the wall was too high to see over, except from the terrace itself, "'they swept up in a mass, the priests, the people, the guards, and all. "'A few strokes took her over the water. "'Ian stooped and seized her under the arms, drew her out of the water, "'lifted her onto the one horse, vaulted himself onto the other, "'and they fled like the wind.' Shot after shot then rang out, and the bullets whistled only too alarmingly near them, but they were soon out of reach. "'Mount and pursue!' shouted Father Austin as he stumbled over the body of the dead man. And take this clumsy loon and bury him! The horses are tired. We need fresh steeds for that,' said one of the guard. mercy, take them from the hall!' he roared. But no one would find the keys of the stable. And Mistress Mowbray, coming up a moment later, said in acid tones, "'Take your own horses, Sir Priest. Warrant or no warrant, you cannot steal. And if you touch my horses, I will have you hanged as a common horse thief.'" She looked at him triumphantly. The exercise of power delighted her, and she even felt a glow of reflected glory from Aileen's achievement. "'We know how to manage these interlopers,' she thought. "'I am mistress of this situation. Aileen?' you have done very well. Father Austin looked cowed, and the sullen people stood in the way and blocked the road. One managed to secure a stirrup, another broke a girth, while a third removed a halter altogether. You shall suffer for this, said the priests, when they at length reached the horses, but the attitude of the crowd was so menacing that they became afraid for their very lives, and finally had to fall back upon entreaty before they were allowed to go away at all. The result was that the fugitives had two full hours' start on good horses before Father Austin could get his little troop under way. Had God sent a deliverer from the skies, mused Mistress Mowbray, as she sat and pondered the strange events of the day. End of chapter 23